It's hard to describe to anyone who has not been on the tram, but you get on the tram and there's this palpable sense of energy, adventure, expectation. There's this whole dance, you know, people back into it. They get into a semi-bearable position for the ride up. And then the tram slowly eases out of the tram dock and whisks up the mountain. The music kicks in as you go by Corbett's. Everyone's whispering to the first timers. There it is. It's the energy in the tram. It's the sense that the tram's taking you up as far into the Tetons as you'll ever go if you're not a climber. And there's this commitment that you're going out for adventure and this is going to be unique and you can't get it anywhere else. And every vertical foot that you go up the tram, up the mountain, it's your stoke is rising with it. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester. We have got the alpha dog of U.S. skiing here for you today. First, though, your reminder that to get the full experience of the storm, you need to stop what you're doing and go subscribe to the free storm skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. If you're just listening to this on iTunes or Spotify or Google, you're missing everything else that comes with the storm. You can also follow along on Instagram or Twitter at Storm Ski Journal. That is where I talk season passes and lift tickets and all things lift surf skiing all day, every day. First up, let's talk about my sponsor, Mountain Gazette. Founded in 1966, Mountain Gazette is a large format biannual print title celebrating mountain culture. If you're familiar with the traditional Mountain Gazette, you're going to be shocked when you see the new format. It is an absolute monster. 16 and a half inches by 10 and three quarters inches. What has not changed about the new Mountain Gazette is the incredible wide ranging writing and show stopping photography. I'll tell you what I mean. Issue 196, Shipping As I Speak, features a huge gallery titled The Last Days of Skiing in Afghanistan. Mountain Gazette connected with photographer who captured what may be the last shots of skiing before the Taliban took over. This is the most powerful piece the magazine has done to date, but the range here is huge. Another gallery that will be in this issue, Daniel Arnold, New York's most renowned street photographer, will roll out a gallery that conveys his impression of autumn in New York City. Do not miss this. You need to subscribe today to reserve your copy at mountaingazette.com. Enter code GOHIRE-10, all one word, for 10% off subscriptions. That's a new code now, GOHIRE-10. That will ensure that you get that story and everything else in issue 196. Use code EASTCOAST, all one word, for 10% off everything else including vintage magazine covers, which make great art for your home office or living room. Mountain Gazette, when in doubt, go higher. Episode 62, Mary-Kate Buckley, president of Jackson Hole Mountain Resort. Here it is, the mother of all U.S. ski areas, Jackson freaking Hole. It may not be the biggest, it may not be the snowiest mountain in the country, but it is without question the baddest. More than 4,000 foot of unrelenting vert, 500 inches of snow per year, and some of the steepest and gnarliest inbounds lines on the continent don't give a damn that Park City has more than twice the skiable acres as Jackson Hole. If you want to see what you're made of, 
you come to Jackson to do it. Look, there's really nothing I can tell you about Jackson Hole that you don't probably already know. So I'm going to hand it over to someone who can. The woman in charge of the whole operation. Let's do it. My guest today has been the president of Jackson Hole Mountain Resort since 2018. Jackson Hole features 2,500 acres of inbounds terrain and has averaged more than 500 inches of snow per year over the past five seasons. The mountain's 4,139 feet is the longest contiguous lift-served vertical drop of any ski resort in the United States. Jackson Hole is consistently ranked as the top ski resort in North America by Z-Rankings. Prior to taking the top job at Jackson Hole, she spent more than two decades overseeing global teams at Nike and Walt Disney. Mary-Kate Buckley is my guest. Mary-Kate, thank you so much for joining us today. And thanks so much for inviting me, Stuart. I'm pleased to be here. You know, you have a really interesting business background, Mary-Kate. So let's start there. You've worked for some really well-known companies at times when they were aggressively expanding globally. Tell us about your business background and your career leading up to Jackson Hole. Great. Um, I started my career immediately after college in New York City in the advertising industry and then was hired into the Disney Consumer Products Group in New York City. They paid for me to get my MBA at night. And when I uh, graduated from business school, I moved with Disney to Hong Kong and I moved into a licensing and marketing position, developing Pan China. I then moved into a business development position and had lengthy assignments in Japan, in India, in Indonesia. Uh, and it was a great opportunity for me to travel and get to see Asia and learn so many of the fundamentals of business. I then was moved to Paris as head of uh, business development for Europe, Middle East, and Africa. And I was only in Paris a short time when I was recruited by Nike to lead their global business development efforts. Uh, one of the first strategies that I looked at was how to e-commerce enable Nike.com. That was at the time just a marketing website. And I wrote a strategy and then they told me I had to go in there and run it. So I, um, we launched e-commerce on Nike.com and I ran it for a couple of years. We introduced uh, Nike ID the custom uh, footwear platform, and uh, introduced a number of other innovations. They then asked me to lead uh, the Americas region, which was Latin America and Canada, and Nike divided its P&L into just four regions. Um, and in that role, I oversaw everything, all countries in Latin America and Canada, and all facets of the operation, from marketing through retail stores, sports marketing, uh, you name it, uh, I was responsible for it. Uh, they then added the Bauer Hockey Company um, to my responsibilities, and I oversaw Bauer and then moved to Amsterdam uh, to head up apparel. Um, and that was my last stop with Nike and in, in the big corporate world. Uh, I left Nike in 2009. So it sounds like an exciting globetrotting life at a very, very interesting time in history when e-commerce and, and digital and online really emerging as, as a consumer force. Uh, what made you stop? Uh, I became involved in a winery uh, in 2004. Um with my partner, we bought uh, we bought we bought some land in Tuscany, planted it in 2006, 
And my move to Europe was actually to position me so I could be close to the winery. And I just got to a place where I wanted to devote um, all of my time and attention uh, to getting the wine business off the ground. And that winery has a really interesting connection to skiing. Tell us about that. (laughs) Well, I met my partner in Portillo in Chile, and I traveled extensively through Latin America, and I would pop into uh, to Portillo when I had some time. And my partner worked for Lang and Rosignol Ski Boots for more than 40 years. Um, he was the director of the racing department, and they actually had their own factory where they would custom mold ski boots for World Cup racers. He made uh, custom-made ski boots for some of the greats of all time, starting with Ingemar Stenmark, uh, Herman Meyer, uh, Julia Mancuso, Alberto Tomba. Um, and I, I think it's something like 78 Olympic medals have been won in his ski boots. So we met in Portillo. He was there uh, working with, I think it was the Austrian Federation. And our first conversation was about athletic footwear, because that's what we had in common. <laughs> so where can we get your wine, Mary-Kate? Um, so it's sold in some States. It's really sold around a lot of, uh, mountain States and, uh, New York city. Anyone's welcome to send me a message and I'll be happy to direct them to how they can get some. It's great. So that's quite a resume. It sounds like you really could have gone anywhere. What brought you to Jackson Hole? Oh, I, I absolutely love Jackson Hole from the first time I visited in 1985. And I made a point of visiting almost every year. Maybe I didn't get here two years when I was living outside the U.S. And I bought a house here in 2004. So having trotted all around the globe and skied everywhere, this is the one place where I decided I wanted to set my roots. And did you ski when you were over in Europe? I did. I did. I really tried to take advantage of it. And even when I was posted in Hong Kong, uh, I skied in New Zealand and Japan, took advantage of the Asian markets. Yeah. (laughs) And did you grow up skiing? No, I grew up in a a very athletic family, but not a ski family. And so my first exposure to skiing was through the YMCA. Um, I think I took a bus to Mount Southington. I grew up in Connecticut. Mm -hmm. Um, And I would go wherever the YMCA bus would take me. So that was pretty much limited to Connecticut resorts, Mohawk, Southington, or maybe up to Massachusetts for Butternut or or, uh, Brody. Um, and it was really, and I started, um, in high school, it was really after high school. Um, when I was, I'm sorry, after college, um, I was working in New York city and would do a group share house up in Vermont and go on up every weekend. So you skied all over. It sounds like you had some exposure to the great ski circuses of Europe and skied in Japan where the powder is just legendary. What is it about Jackson hole that sets it apart from every other place? Oh, it is, you know, anyone who who um, comes to Jackson uh, will talk about the connection to nature. It's the mountains, the terrain of the resort, uh, the vistas, the quality of the snow, uh, the simplicity of the town, uh, the tram. There's just so much about it that makes you feel like, you know, this is where I belong. This is where I need to be. So you came out there ostensibly to retire, and before you know it, you're part of the bo- the resort's board of directors. How did that opportunity come up? Um, I moved here full-time in 2009, um, while and it was my base for trying to get the wine distribution um, and our brand off the ground. Um, the 
the Jackson Hole Mountain Resort is owned by a family, but they have an external board of directors. And they had decided that they wanted to bring some new board members on with functional expertise. Um, retail was one of them because we have a large retail operation. And they also said, we'd like this functional expertise. And if we can get a woman's voice on the board, all the better. And so I would say it's really, it was forced diversity, um, making a concerted effort that we, um, that the resort would benefit from having a woman's voice. And I was the lucky one. How long were you on the board of directors and what did you try to achieve when you were holding that position? So I joined the board in, in 2014. Um, and I'm still a board member in my current job. Um, it was getting to know the um, the business from a strategic level. Um, I was here to ski, and so I had spent a lot of time in the mountain. So I had very strong opinions um, about the ski operations, and so there were so many things, um, you know, so many things I was learning about why the resort ran the way it did, um, and then I tried to influence, you know, some of the operations. So when did the opportunity come up for the CEO job and what made that a compelling opportunity for you? Uh, so the um, Jerry Bland was the longstanding, tremendous president for 23, 24 years. And he was approaching retirement and the board was starting to look around to look for a successor. They asked me if I would consider it. Um, I said I would. And then they went out and did a full on national search uh, and came back and, and asked me if I would step into the role. So I know you moved out to Jackson Hole to ski. It's 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 a place that you just couldn't stay away from. Even as you traveled all around the world, you made the Jackson Hole 100 Day Club many times. How has holding the CEO role and running that mountain on a daily basis, uh, how conducive has that been to your skiing? Uh, it, I must admit, it's one of the downsides. It's been an impediment. There's no more bell to bell. Um, employees don't get credit for our days out there skiing. Um, so I, I cannot make the hundred day club any longer, but I do make an effort to get on the hill every day. I like to ski around, check in with the employees, you know, understand the conditions, see if they're, you know, see what's going on out there. Um, so I, you know, it's, I still get out there. It's not the quality of what I was doing when my number one goal in life was to get out there and ski every day. <laughs> So you came in with this very unique basket of experiences. You had these global roles for Nike and Disney. Uh, you also had experience running a very niche uh, weather-dependent business in this vineyard. Um, but then there was this whole other set of, of knowledge and skills that I would imagine you had to learn, things about the actual mechanics of running the mountain and maintaining it and all the machinery that goes along with it. What did you find from your experience was set you up in it? in a way that was conducive to running the ski resort? And what did you really have to learn and, and lean on your team to teach you as you settled into this role? Well, I was taking the role knowing that we had, you know, the most fabulous team. We have so much experience here. Um, there, there are folks who've been in their roles for 30 plus years and everyone is passionate about it. So it was not a turnaround situation. I think it was more Jerry Bland had done a great job building out the resort and the questions were what next? So um, coming in to help create a vision for how we could continue growing, how we could create a great atmosphere for our employees. Um, that was the focus. 
And I must say that the team was my, you know, the existing team in place was my landing pad. Um, they, no one needed to tell them what to do. If nothing else, I think they just deserved a lot of recognition and credit for the great job that they had all been doing. And, and that's what I've tried to do for them. All right, let's shift gears here and talk about the mountain. Jackson Hole is a serious piece of real estate known far and wide as one of the most challenging mountains in the United States. However, uh, the mountain has taken deliberate steps over the past several years to make the terrain or pieces of the terrain more appealing to beginners and families. So I'm talking about things like the new beginner center that you have there off the mid station of the Sweetwater Gondola or a little further down the mountain, the Eagles Rest Quad. So talk about some of these initiatives, Mary, Mary Kate, and, and how you've worked to create a, a, a mountain, a resort experience that is more appealing to more levels of skiers and how that evolution will continue into the future. Well, many of our guests come to Jackson with the objective of taking their skiing to the next level versus simply getting away on a ski vacation. People come here to challenge themselves. Um, we're great for that because we have you know some of the highest levels of challenging terrain that you can find out there. But so we're known for offering um, these levels of challenge. Um, and we have this great mountain sports school that helps people to step up in their ability level. We opened the Solitude Station, which is our mountain sports school learning center in 2018. Um, it provides a haven for learning. It's the first stop on our Sweetwater Gondola and the meeting location for kids and adult group lessons for skiers and snowboarders. Um, it's the ideal learning center for first timers, uh, has a, a covered conveyor lift, uh, a beautiful welcome center that has product sales, rental facilities, restrooms, a spectacular warming room. Kids in the ski school have their own lunchroom um, and, you know, great kid specific uh, menus are on, are on offer. Um, it allows kids people who have never put on a pair of ski boots to walk onto a gondola and then walk off at the top and then have someone there to instruct them how to move around with it. So it's just set up very logically. And then for parents, it's fantastic because the parents can sit outside next to our fire pits and look down and watch their kids learn as they come up the conveyor belt. So it's really um, very well thought out, um, beautifully constructed and unique. Um, we also work with our grooming fleets to sculpt different learning features that allow us to challenge people on less challenging terrain. Um, we simulate the demands of steeper terrain and while maintaining some level of safety and reducing anxiety. Um, we have designated the Eagle's Rest Zone and that chair went in, I want to say in 2019. We've, that whole zone is a slow skiing area with 100% groomed terrain every night. And then we've also expanded our kids map to offer accomplishment stickers for all ability levels um, throughout the resort. And if you're familiar with the mountain, our Après Vu um, mountain, it's, um, it is basically a standalone mountain for intermediates. So you don't have experts whizzing by people. And it has the, the breadth of terrain that you would find, you know, at a New England ski resort. It, it could be its own standalone resort, and it's set up just for intermediates. So even as you've worked to very deliberately 
vary this experience for different sorts of skiers. I don't think locals have to worry too much because the mountain is a monster and most of it is not tameable. As Jackson Hole has grown in popularity and stature and gotten easier to get to with the improved air service, have there been folks getting in over their heads? Did you have people coming out there who don't understand just how challenging Jackson Hole is in relation to some of the mountains they may have tried before? Some of the big mountains like Park City or Keystone or Steamboat, all fantastic resorts, but but not on the level of Jackson Hole where you have the cliffs and the collars and and the, the possibility of losing yourself in the backcountry. <laughs> well, there are very few guests who arrive to ski Jackson who are not aware of what they're getting into. Actually, they're probably seeking it out for a reputation for challenging terrain. Um, that's We're legendary for that. Um, and so many of them will return from their vacations and brag that they've skied Jackson Hole. And who knows what they've been skiing, right? But it's just <laughs> bragging rights. Um, I've heard guests comment that a blue run at JHMR is the equivalent of a black at a different resort. But of course, the challenge is um, much as much a function as the conditions as it is the steepness or vertical length. And our snow coverage makes some of our challenging steep slopes all the more approachable. Um, We share with other resorts the responsibility of raising awareness to the conditions that are unique to the West. You know, for example, tree wells, avalanche danger, access to the backcountry. And we communicate this every possible opportunity with signage and to raise awareness. You get on the tram and the locals will chant along with the tram operator when he's talking about accessing the the backcountry. Everyone chants, if you don't know, don't go. So there's this awareness that people need to be educated. And, you know, right down across the board, the locals are on point to help with that as well. We have an accomplished mountain sports school and encourage our guests to hire knowledgeable instructors to help them adapt their ability to our terrain. We have mountain hosts that offer free tours of the resort to help orient our visitors. And then our patrol is at the ready to assist any of our guests as needed. So I'm curious in particular here, Mary-Kate, about Corbett's. It's this bucket list run. It's probably the most famous ski run in America. You can see it from the tram. It's very prominent on the mountain. It has a very scary drop-in. Have you seen an uptick in folks trying trying to dive into this run that maybe shouldn't be? (laughs) Well, um, you know, it is a bucket list item for so many people. And uh, so many people go over, look over the edge, and then they back away. Um, <laughs> but you do see people who, who you know, uh, jump in, and that was that's their objective. I think our event, Kings and Queens of Corbett's, has raised awareness of this um, of our run. Um, when you say they shouldn't be in there, there are very few people who should be in there. If you if your <laughs> definition is to ski it with control and grace. Um, but that's not what Corbett's is all about. And, you know, we see people just go and huck and tumble and they come up smiling and they've checked their bucket <laughs> list. Um, but there are, of course, consequences from, for those who lack those, those true expert abilities. Uh, any advice for folks who want to work their way up to Corbett's or, or see if they have what it takes to ski Corbett's without taking the plunge? You know, I always, t- when people tell me that they're thinking about Corbett's and they're going to go over, my advice is always, you better go on the count of three. Because if you <laughs> if you think about it longer than the count of three, you're probably going to come to your senses and, and realize how foolish it is. Um, 
So, um, you know, go, don't overthink it. Um, but we also offer multi-day camps that are specifically designed to advance skills. And often they have corbets as like the graduation ceremony. You know, mm. if, you, if you're, you've come up in your abilities, um, they'll let you try corbets. We also, our private lessons will, will permit for progressive coaching and tactics in, you know, super, uh, super steep and narrow shoot sort of thing. We have a run that's called Meet Your Maker, and some people say that that's a good test ground to see if you can keep it together on a very steep grade and a tight shoot where it's difficult to make turns. But, you know, honestly, there's there's just no substitute for jumping into orbit. <laughs> Does Meet Your Maker have the drop in? Um, it's closed a lot of the time. It is super narrow, so it's really okay. hard to make a turn, right? So it's um, you can practice hurtling down at mock speed. You just don't have as as far of a runway. Okay, I think I'm going to pass on that opportunity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've cartwheeled out of there. So. <laughs> so zooming out of here a bit, Mary Kate uh, Jackson Hole has 2,500 acres of terrain, huge by any measure. Skiers can also access 3,000 acres of backcountry terrain through the gates. As you look around Wyoming, your neighbor Snow King is expanding. Our Grand Targhee is trying to expand. Are the current inbounds boundaries of Jackson Hole set? Or is there potential to expand the resort's managed footprint out into some of that terrain over time? So we, um, we operate under a special use permit from the U.S. Forest Service, and that um, special use permit is for 2,400 acres. We have a separate outfitter guide um, that permits us to guide into the backcountry that's south of the resort. Um, and so that is the additional 3,000 acres of backcountry terrain. You know, a lot of people will object to us taking guided parties out into the backcountry, um, but that's our opportunity to teach people and teach them the skills um, with guidance. Uh, and our guided tours only account for about 5% of the overall use in that backcountry. Mm. So in terms of expanding, at one point, the Cody Bowl, it's already in our special use per permit. And in the early days, there were race camps there in the spring, and they actually mm. had two two lifts there. Um, and so that is still in our master plan. Um we could expand out um, into Rock Springs or Green River Bowls, um, but right now there are no formal ski trails or lifts proposed at the time. Were we to go down the path and look at expanding, uh, we would require environmental review from the U.S. Forest Service. That's a process that takes, you know, likely about three years. We have not started that process, so I can just tell you there's no time in the next three years we'll be doing that. And what would be the trigger to cause you to even look at that? Would, would it be the current lift fleet and amount of terrain not being able to handle the number of skiers that you have coming to the resort on a daily basis? It would be probably the need to expand, but we feel that um, we can upgrade a couple of our existing lifts and may potentially expand within our existing boundaries, do some trail work. Um, we have a we have an initiative where every year we're going to do a certain amount of glading. So we think um, with some investment in our current permitted area, we can offer a better experience. Um, the step we're taking is to manage capacity and limit the number of tickets um, that will allow people in here to preserve that experience. 
So let's talk about that glading for a moment. What, what sections were you able to glade over this summer? I want to say we did bird in the hand uh, last year. We took out a bunch of trees as you went into peppies. Um, and we also blasted rock where there's that choke point um, that people, you know, after after a couple of days, people wind up sidestepping around the corner. So, right. um, and the trees off of peppies, you know, there's so many names for, for all, the, all the little <laughs> um, side ones. Um, the trees that you look at as you're going up the sublift, we're thinning those out a little bit, um, not, not taking them out, but just making, um, giving a lot more access for skiing. All right, let's talk about the lift system here. And let's start with the tram, Mary Kate. Can you just tell us about the importance of the tram as a symbolic heart of Jackson Hole? Sure. And, you know, you could you could make an argument on paper based on facts um, that would substantiate why the tram is so important to us. Um, it was the first tram at a ski resort in the West. It followed, I want to say, a tram at Cannon Mountain in the 30s, and there were some trams in mining camps. But it was the first in the West um, at a ski resort. Um, the vertical rise that it accesses, the fact that it was put in for the first time 56 years ago and the challenges to the crews building it that literally put their lives at risk. Um, the financial commitment that the the resort made, um, a $32 million investment, you know, there was risk whether it would really improve our guest experience. And overall, it's an incredible piece of machinery. Um, our tram operators and maintenance crew are so proud to work on this. Um, they've had hats made that say, my job is better than your vacation. And we always threaten them, like, if you do anything wrong, we might make you go work on a different lift. So there's huge pride. Um, and But those are all just facts and figures. I think um, if you get on the tram, it's hard to describe to anyone who has not been on the tram, but you get on the tram and there's this palpable sense of energy, adventure, expectation. Um, there's this whole dance, you know, people back into it. They get into a semi-bearable position for the ride up. And then the tram slowly eases out of the tram dock and whisks up the mountain. Um, the music kits, kicks in as you go by Corbett's. Everyone's whispering to the first timers. There it is. Um, and so there's this, this whole scene of riding the tram. Um, and so I think it's the energy in the tram. It's the sense that you are, you know, the tram's taking you up as far into the Tetons as you'll ever go if you're not a climber. And there's this commitment that you're going out for adventure and this is going to be unique and you can't get it anywhere else. And every vertical foot that you go up the tram, up the mountain, it's your stoke is rising with it. So it's the energy inside the tram, I think, more so than any of the facts that would you know, make a compelling argument for why it's so important to us. Yeah, that's phenomenal. I mean, that is the alpha lift of American skiing, and that is on everyone's list to take <laughs> that thing at least one time. You know, last year, COVID exposed one shortcoming, which is you had to limit capacity and there's no other way to the top. So curious if Jackson Hole ever considered having a redundant lift to the top. And when that lift was out, when the tram was out for a couple of years for the replacement that you referenced, there was a double chair that ran up East Ridge in Rendezvous Bowl. And that came out when the tram came back in. Did you ever wish last year that you would have left that in? Or have you ever considered building redundancy now? 
Well, and you know, last year when we did limit um, capacity on the tram because of COVID, we did put in a boot pack. So there were people who, you know, would take an open air lift up to sublet and then boot pack up. But the, you know, the Eastridge chair was installed um, during the years that the tram was being replaced. So there was no tram service. So there was never redundancy. It was never a tram plus a lift servicing the bowl. And, you know, I think part of the beauty of the of the bowl and one of the reasons why people are willing to wait as long as they are is because that there's limited access to the bowl. You know, it's 600 people an hour. So um, I'll, I'll share with you an anecdote. Um, when I first started, I went to Tim Mason, who's the head of our mountain ops, and was like, Tim, what would you think about, you know, putting a chair up the rendezvous bowl and, and we'd cut the lines and more people could get at it. And Tim, with all his diplomacy, just said, wow, you know, not a bad idea. And then um, I saw him in a video where he was, he said something like, you know, and every once in a while, some knucklehead comes in and put another chair up into the bowl. And that's the last thing we want to do because, you know, one of our goals is once you get up there, you have great conditions and that would just mm -hmm. destroy it. So I'm now a convert and I, I think it's highly unlikely that we'll ever see a second access into the bowl. All right. Well, the tram is here to stay. Looking around the mountain, though, you have a huge lift fleet. Long-term, Mary-Kate, what is your wish list for upgrades or replacements of lifts at Jackson Hole? So we we plan all of our investments on a five-year horizon. And within our five-year horizon, we will be replacing both the Thunder and the Sublet chairs. Um, so with d detachables. Um, and that, you know, that will get some people up a little bit faster. We envision that the Sublet chair... Um, we'll have heavier chairs and that will help us sustain some of the strong winds that sometimes can shut that, that chair down. Um, I would love to see, and we're starting to talk about maybe something out on a lower face. Um, and there's great terrain on the lower faces. Um, the problem is, you know, you have to go, you have to access it through a whole nother lift system. And then you typically have to come down to the base area and start your, your, uh, journey all over. So a, um, a chair in the lower faces would help people to lap it and get access to that great terrain. So th that's what's immediately on my horizon. And do you, do you have a line in mind for a lower face chair in, in relation to the trail map where that would run? You know, we've, we've looked at lower sublet. Um, we would probably want to make sure that we could, um, you know, access it from the top of, of uh, the Moose Creek chair you know, that would be another um, access point. Uh, we'd probably keep our hoe back sacred. No way we'd put a chair over there. Mm. Um, so starting to look around. And as you look at the lines for Sublet and Thunder, are you happy with the lines that those lifts run in now? Or do you think there'd be some adjustments there? So when we look at Thunder, I think we would follow the, you know, the current line. I think it makes a lot of sense. We, we're looking at uh, contour loading and unloading, you know, so like our Teton lift where you load and then you go around a corner and uh, unloading, you would come around a corner to unload. Um, uh, but otherwise, we think it, uh, Thunder would pretty much follow the current line. Uh, with sublet, we have talked about moving um, sublet, reconfiguring it, maybe getting it off of that cliff face, and then potentially having it um, 
having the termination, the unloading a little bit lower on the mountain, you know, so that you could still access tent sleep, but it's that last little pitch that so frequent, frequently gets wind whipped. And so lowering it just a smidge might help us eliminate that wind factor. And you said you're looking at detached lifts for, for both Thunder and Sublet. Are you looking at quads or, or is there a chance we'd see Jackson Holes for a six or eight pack? Uh, we're looking at quads and, you know, when we look at an eight pack, it's, it's a great lift for getting volume out of the base area, getting people up the hill. And we already have a tram, two gondolas and a chair, um, getting people out of our base area. And then last year we, we started opening the mountain half an hour earlier to get people up and out. Uh, and we're going to continue that, um, so I don't see an eight pack. A six pack is a way of getting more people up the mountain faster. And, um, you know, we've, we've looked at it for sublet because it would be a heavier chair. Um, it could help withstand the wind. But we also, um, same principle as preserving our conditions in the bowl. You know, our, we'd rather have people wait a little bit in line versus having them bumping into each other with too many people being dropped off at the top. We're doing some, some trail work now to make sure people can spread out um, when they get up there. Anyone to the resort this, this winter will see we've put a groomable road um, across Charles Barkley as another, another entry into Laramie Bowl. Um, so we're just making all kinds of improvements to make sure that people can spread out when they get up there. You know, Mary Kay, you're saying a lot of interesting things about controlling uphill capacity as a way to maintain the experience. And, and I think we're seeing a philosophical battle going on in skiing right now as far as how do you balance number of skiers on the mountain with uphill capacity and how do you make sure you have a good day? And you see everyone going in different directions. Vale decided they're going to put high capacity lifts in as many as they can afford on as many as mountains as they can. And they got rid of the reservation system. They're just going to, and they turbocharged Epic Passes with a 20% discount, right? That's one model. You look down at Arapahoe Basin in Colorado, and they're saying, we're taking out our triple chair, replacing it with a six pack, and we're cutting the number of season passes we're selling by 10%. So you're decreasing capacity while you're increasing uphill capacity and decreasing overall capacity. And then on Jackson Hole, you have this model where you're you're being very mindful of capacity, and then, and then you are limiting the number of skiers on the mountain through a number of kind of subtle tweaks to the way that, that you intake skiers. So talk a little bit about that balance and, and how you've been managing the number of skiers who come onto the mountain and, and how you think about overall experience within that developing skier landscape. Yeah. And it is a balance. It sure is a balance. Um, and our decision to restrict capacity last year was really in response to COVID. Um, and we had no idea whether or not there'd be demand, um, but we knew that we were going to give people the option to have their own chair. We knew that um, you know, we were going to limit tram access. So we thought that we better put a cap on the number of people who came through here. Anyone who was here last year wouldn't believe there was a cap because some of the lines were outrageous. However, people did note, people noticed the difference um, and we saw it in the comments coming back. They noted very long lift lines, but they also noted that once they got up there, there was no one on the hill. Um, and so, you know, and that made for a better experience. So we are keeping our cap in place this year. Um, one thing with the cap is when we sell out in certain periods, 
you know, perhaps we can convince people to come at a different time and, and spread the demand throughout the season. That's one of our objectives, a nice steady flow versus a ton of people at Christmas holidays. And it's not that great an experience. So we're mindful of that. We're mindful of um, making sure that people can move around the resort safely. Um, visitors this winter will see that we've blown out Ship's Prow, and that's the spot on Rendezvous Trail just above Cheyenne And it's always a pinch point. There's always someone standing right in the way. So we blasted, uh, blasted tons and tons of rock. Um, it's now more than 50 feet wide. I think previously it was 25%. Um, 25 feet wide. So that was made um, with recognition for safety. Last year, we put a ton of effort into um, lower tram line. We widened it, we graded it, we put snowmaking in. So we're investing a lot of money to keep our resort safe and spread people out um, while capping the number and not just putting people up on the hill. Um, and Pete, no one, no one ever wants to wait in a line, but if you wait in a line and you get up there and the conditions are, are better preserved, you know, hopefully they'll forgive us for those lines. You know, this notion of spreading folks more evenly throughout the season is really interesting. And, and to that point, Jackson Hole has quite a short season for a major mountain resort. You wrapped up last spring on April 11th, and, and I believe that's a fairly typical day. Uh, it seems like you usually have quite a base when the mountain closes up for the season. So, so talk to us about why Jackson Hole shuts down in early April when there's still snowpack to go maybe for weeks afterwards. Yeah, well, we are a destination resort, and uh, we, we rely on our destination visitors. We rely on air service. And our airline partners plan their travel well in advance. You know, they post their schedules six to eight months out. So they have no idea what our snowpack is going to be like. And, and our destination visitors don't have any concept. We're not next to a major metropolitan area that has consistent um, uh, flight schedules. So, you know, Snowbird, um, they're always going to be planes coming in and out of Salt Lake City. So they, they can play it by ear with their snow. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, and then the second factor beyond the airlines is that our employees make their plans to move on to their next adventure. So we start to see them dribbling out to go up to Alaska or to go somewhere else. And so there just comes a, a point where it's better to say, you know, it's the end of the season, everyone go off. Um, and that's how, you know, that's what we look at when we calculate our closing date. So you have a big, expansive mountain with lots of hardware. And, and, and what I found really interesting about this, Mary-Kate, is that uh, your buildings, lifts, and snowmaking run on wind energy, and your mountain ops trucks run on French fry oil. So talk about Jackson Hole's commitment to sustainability. I know you're developing a climate action plan. And, and your plans to just keep building out the sustainable infrastructure in the future. Yes, and we are, we are committed um, to that. And we have been for quite some time. We're recognized as a leader in the ski industry in reducing energy consumption and recycling our consumables and treating the spectacular natural habitat, which surrounds us with vision and care. Um, years ago, we were one of the first ski resorts to secure the ISO 14001 status. We received the National Ski Area Association's Golden Eagle Award for environmental excellence. And in 2019, uh, we we moved to 100% green 
you know, green renewable energy. We're wind powered here. And we did that um, in close collaboration with our local energy company. So we are committed um, to reducing our carbon footprint. We have initiatives where any, um, any facilities that we build, any of the construction projects, um, everyone is subjected to undergo a thorough design review process to ensure best practices and sustainable materials are, are made. We are rethinking our purchasing strategy across all departments, you know, to focus on sustainable products, materials, source, you know, locally sourced food, all of that. Every, every department is very different. Um, and every department is tasked with um, creating their sustainability plan and uh, holding everyone accountable to it. So lots going on there. Uh, let's shift gears and talk here about the Icon Pass. Jackson Hole was an inaugural member of the Icon Pass and skiers in the 2018 to 19 season received five days at Jackson Hole on the base pass and the full pass skiers got seven days. Um, looking back, I think everyone was really caught off guard by how much traffic that pass generated for Jackson Hole in, in combination with a few other factors, which we can talk about. Um, and, and also kind of shocked at the backlash that that brought on from the locals at Jackson Hole. So take us through that first season, Mary-Kate, uh, with the Icon Pass at Jackson Hole and, and, and how you had to evolve the resort to respond to that. Right. And I was not involved in the planning or the upfront um, negotiations to sign on with the Icon Pass, but I'll guarantee no one foresaw um, the crowds that, that that pass would drive. And for us, that year was a huge snow year here. You know, we had more than 500 inches of snow again. Um, and it was below an average snow year for many of the Western resorts. So, you know, the inaugural year, we were certainly going to attract all, attract all those Icon Pass holders who had us on their bucket list. They'd always wanted to get here. They planned their vacations to come here. But then simultaneously, we attracted the snow chasers who couldn't find snow anywhere else. And they had this, this pass in hand. And so they came to Jackson. And whereas historically, the majority of our guests arrive in the winter, you know, via plane, um, the regional people who could just hop in the car, they drove here. And so that that meant, you know, the influx of drivers put pressure on our roads, backed up traffic. Um, we sold out of parking lots um, and or, or our parking lots filled out. Um, we had multiple days that year with double digit powder. And so, of course, on the one hand, that attracted a ton of people. On the other hand, sometimes it meant that our patrol had delayed openings and there would just be crowds gathered at the base area till they could get it open. Um, so the high demand resulted in crowding in the base bases in our restaurants. Um, and we were just really overwhelmed and not prepared for, um, that many visitors. So since that season, um, we've expanded our parking footprint, uh, increased bus service. We've created a base lodge tent because we don't have a base lodge and all these people coming by car had no place to change. So we have a tent there that's kind of temporary, but it works. Um, We've modified our restaurants. You know, we had one restaurant that was table service. We've 
uh, turn that over to more cafeteria dining space because that can accommodate more people. We've uh, converted another location to grab and go. And then we've continued our investments in snowmaking to enhance skiing at the start and end of the scene. You know, there again, the concept of spreading people out. And we've created promotions to attract people to the non-peak times. Um, the introduction of lower tram lines, some of the things I've already talked about, about uh, what we're doing up on the mountain to help people spread out. We are now better able um, to host that many people. And then with the added benefit of daily capacity limits, um, and we've invested in systems that enable purchasing tickets in advance. Um, and we do sell out, you know, we will get to a point where there's just, we know there's, um, we can't take any more people spinning the lifts from 830 when possible to move people around. And then last year we introduced the, a reservation system for icon pass holders. And this year we're going to extend that reservation system. So that mountain collective pass holders will also need to have a reservation. So we have tried to dissect all those issues and tried to address them. Uh, and we're hoping for a good year. <laughs> so it sounds like there were a lot of factors and there's a lot of nuance in there. Nonetheless, the icon pass was quickly latched onto as the boogeyman and, and the scapegoat for all of the lines and all the other things that you described. That's sort of my perception looking from the outside in. How real is anti-icon sentiment among the locals, how widespread is it, and how much is it? An, is it an instance of the loudest voices in the in the room rising to the top? It's real. It is. Um, everyone in the room is yelling about it um, across the board, except maybe the local um, business and lodging community really mm -hmm. appreciate them. And um, I think you know, the first year there was a rumor that you know they were. They weren't paying enough and that we were only, you know, we weren't being compensated. And so our locals were really being gypped. Um, so there was all kinds of angst that um, was generated that first year and it has persisted. And, you know, we're under a confidentiality agreement with um, Altera, the owners and operators of the Icon Pass. So we can't share numbers, but we would like to, um, you know, last year, we, we saw such a huge increase in usage by our season pass holders. Um, that was a function of, you know, so many second homeowners just setting up camp in Jackson and taking advantage of the mountain. It was a function of people not being able to travel. So they just, you know, were here. We had more 14-year-olds make the 100-day club because they weren't mm -hmm. going to school so they could come out and ski every day. So, you know, because of all those factors, um, the percentage of ICON pass holders who were with us last year, you know, decreased greatly because of the increase in, um, in our locals. But um, it is real. That's for sure. You've taken some very deliberate steps to try and tame the sheer numbers of ICON pass holders who show up at Jackson Hole. And I think the most significant of those was prior to the 2020 to 21 ski season. And this was announced right around the time that COVID hit. Uh, Jackson Hole, along with Aspen, moved off of the Icon Base Pass as a default resort partner and was available with a $150 add-on on the Icon Base Pass Plus. Why did you do that and and how did that decision turn out? Yeah, and the decision to move 
uh, off of the base pass was, you know, with some sensitivity to our locals. Um, so uh, the base pass is actually the season pass for a number of resorts, a number of resorts that the Altera Group owns. So, for example, Steamboat, you get your your season pass for Steamboat, and what do you know? Jackson Hole is thrown in mm-hmm. at you know for the same value. So our objective was to make sure that pe- that we weren't just an add-on, that people made the decision that if they're going to go to Jackson, there's a value to that and that they should pay a little bit more. So that was the objective. We also went with a five-day product, the base pass. We continue to offer the seven-day product that is has no blackout dates. And the five, you know, letting people come for five days, blacking out Christmas for a lower price helps us to manage our um, our our capacity at Christmas time. So I think it's, you know, it was an effort to differentiate ourselves, and I think it has worked. So the other step that you took to, well, I saw it as sort of a peace offering, and it, but that's just my perception, is, is you began giving full price Jackson Hole season pass holders an icon base pass so that they could go be icon, <laughs> icon skiers at Big Sky or Steamboat or wherever else. Uh, how was that received and how is that, how is that decision working out? Well, okay. So, um, that we, um, following the first year where there was a lot of, um, a lot of feedback, um, we wanted to, we wanted our locals to understand really what a great product it is, right? That the, you know, the icon pass is huge value. Um, and we wanted them to appreciate it. So we bundled it at no additional price, um, into the season grand pass, and I'd say, you know, um, that was the year we closed early for COVID. And there were some people who said, wow, I was going to use it after Jackson closed for the season. I was going to take a road, clip, so, road trip. So I wasn't able to use the base pass. We had some people say that. We had, you know, folks, um, parents of our, our local ski clubbers say, wow, you know, I did travel all around the region and I was able to use that pass. And it's an incredible value. Wow. But I will say, I think the majority of people um, just said, you know what, I buy a season pass to Jackson Hole because it's the only place in the whole world I ever want to ski. So why would I ever go anywhere else? So um, because some people do see the value, we continue to offer it um, with the Grand Pass for an additional price over what you would normally get for the Grand Pass. I don't think it convinced too many people that they should go anywhere besides Jackson. So you're four years in, the locals still seem down on the Icon Pass. Is there a future, a potential future, where Jackson Hole is no longer on the Icon Pass? You know, um, I think in short, no time in the near future. And I think it's because we've seen um, we've seen the way that the ski industry has evolved and we've seen the way that, um, you know, what our guests are looking for. So the multi, multi-resort pass products serve a number of objectives. Um, there was a, you know, the last decade, the number of skier days has been pretty stagnant. It may, you know, flex up a little bit with good snow conditions, may flex down if there's no snow, but it's been in this narrow band. And so there's been a feeling that we've hit a, a ceiling on the number of skier days that we can attract. And a, 
A big reason for this is the expense of the sport. It it became increasingly expensive to participate, and that may have um, reduced the appeal, you know, to attracting new people to the sport. So these multi-pass products um, are great because they offer great value, and um, it gives people options to access different resorts. The prices price is very attractive. Um, and last year, for the first time, we saw more people purchase season pass products, whether it be their home mountain season pass or a multi-resort pass product. Um, and this attractive pricing is actually driving growth in our sport. So it's got a great benefit there. And then secondly, I think the advent of uh, Airbnb and VRBO and those other vacation rental offerings make it easier for skiers to sample multiple resorts versus just locking into a hometown and only needing a, um, you know, a single season pass. So um, being able to move around, have great houses and have access to those resorts at reasonable prices that's something that we're seeing the guests are migrating to. And so we feel that, you know, the industry is moving, the guest demands are moving. And so um, these multi-resort pass products are here to stay and uh, we are with them for the foreseeable future. So it sounds like the Icon Pass isn't going anywhere. So so let me ask you this, Mary-Kate, how do we all get along? How, how do the locals learn to accept that, hey, your mountain's great and everyone wants to ski there? And, and how do the tourists um, show, show that they respect it and, and understand that, that they're in a place that, uh, you know, they're visitors to a place that, uh, means a lot to a lot of people. How, how do we, how do we reach some, some semblance of, uh, of peace here? <laughs> um, I would love to ask you the same question, right? <laughs> so, um, you know, um, with our, with people who visit, um, we just ask them to be respectful, to be aware, to look for local etiquette, you know, don't leave your skis as a placeholder in the tram line or mm-hmm. learn and follow our mountain guidelines, follow the rules. Don't put yourself in danger where our patrol is going to have to engage in themselves to, to help you out. Um, just basic respect. Um, and then I think for our locals, I'd want to ask them, be kind. Um, keep in mind that these destination visitors are here for a short-term vacation, you know, their once-in-a-lifetime vacation, whereas we get to live here. And mm-hmm. be kind, be generous. I don't know that that message would go very far, but um, that's what I would advise. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, I get it all the time. Um, well, I haven't been into my office in a long, long time. My office is in Times Square in Manhattan. And, uh, and what I try to try to keep in mind as I'm fighting my way back to the subway at the end of the day is, hey, you know, these people have come from across the world to be here. And I just need to, you know, be patient and step around. And I'm sure you had the same experience when you worked in New York City. It's, it's uh, you're, you're, you, ha- you chose to live in a place that everybody else wants to be in. Well, and then, you know, we should keep in mind what we look like when we go to a beach vacation, you know, um, white, white skin and gawkers. So, um, you know, a little kindness and respect will go a long way. So one last thing here on passes, Mary Kate, you've stayed on Jackson Hole has stayed on the mountain collective pass, even as the icon pass has really taken root. And, and I think that surprised a lot of people. I think a lot of observers expected that pass to fade away because there's a lot of crossover with the icon pass, but it, but it seems to have resilience. Um, so talk about the decision to stay on the mountain collective pass. 
Well, and, and J.H. Amara was one of the founders of the Mountain Collective, passed maybe back in 2012, 2013. And that was formed in partnership with Aspen, Squaw. I think Mammoth was in there, Alta. So really premium big mountain destination ski areas. Um, and through the years, there have been, you know, some resorts that have been selectively added, um, ensuring that we maintain the quality. Uh, it's a great pass because it's jointly governed. Um, so bringing a bunch of independent resorts together um, and addressing problems and creating policies was really re unique at the time. It's a great opportunity to share best practices with other premium resorts and collectively, you know, create this great pass. So that's been special. And then through the years, um, we have observed, you know, with the Mountain Collective Pass, you every, you get two days at every resort, and then you select another day for a third. And we see these people who are pursuing the big mountains, pursuing that adventure, kind of on a sampler plan. So, mm -hmm. you know, they want to check us out and then go down to Alta and over to Snowbird. Um, and be, it's that um, mentality of trying to fit a bunch of different resorts in a single week's vacation. Mm -hmm. It's a different mindset. And so this, this product just serves that mindset perfectly. Yeah, those are they've changed skiing. There's no doubt about that. I want to follow up on something you said earlier about the Airbnbs and the short-term rentals and and the the sort of ease of movement that they give to vacationers, which which no doubt is true. You know, my family we we get Airbnbs all the time because they have something that traditional hotels don't, which is separate bedrooms and bathrooms for the kids and and, and just a, a little bit more room to spread out and make it feel a little more like you're at home. There's a dark side to this, however, in that, especially in places like Jackson, where housing has been short in short supply forever, you're seeing a lot of conversions of what used to be rental stock into these uh, short-term rentals. So, so you have this market that was then compounded by COVID and this relocation of a very large part of the white collar workplace onto mountain towns. So can you just talk about those dynamics in particular and the challenges they've created for you, especially trying to find housing for your employees and make sure that they have a place that they can stay reasonably close to the resort to get to work. Yeah. Well, I think like every other mountain community, probably every vacation uh, community, um, the short-term rentals have certainly squeezed our local workers um, as they've been replaced with monthly rent, monthly rentals or just, just, um, sold. So the demand to move to Jackson, you know, last year through COVID just drove up prices through all levels of housing and landlords would sell their rental properties for exorbitant prices. So, mm -hmm. you know, right now there's virtually zero rental property market um, wow. and the shortage has driven up rental rates. So we have addressed that um, a number of ways. Um, with our compensation, we've increased our minimum minimum wage to $15 an hour, and that actually represents a 60% increase since 2018. So wow. we have methodically been making sure that we're moving our, our minimum wage up, um, trying to keep up with market rates. Um, we've adjusted salaries uh, across the board. We introduced a cost of living adjustment this, uh, I think it was October 1st, uh, to help people out with rentals. We uh, focus on housing. We have um, a, a number of beds, um, whether it be our own apartment style buildings or 
Um, you know, there's a variety of formats. We introduced a new housing complex in May, two-bedroom townhouses to accommodate the longer tenured employees who might want housing for their families. We have near-term plans to develop the next phase of our own housing here in Jackson and starting to noodle you know, what can we do across the pass over in Victor? You know, what can we do for our employees? So um, this season we've been, you know, because any of these are construction projects that take some time, there's no answer tomorrow. Um, we've just been aggressively leasing any housing that we can get our hands on this season. And for us, you know, you find a bed means you can probably find an employee. So we reciprocate with some of the local employers who need summer housing versus our demand is mostly for winter housing. Um, we've, we've tried to be flexible with our jobs and anyone who can work remotely, we accommodate that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, th- so it has been, it, it is the pr- huge point of stre- stress for us and everyone else here in Teton County, probably across the industry. It sounds like you're combating this on multiple fronts. And, and, and you mentioned if you can get workers, there's, a, there's been a lot of talk of a worker shortage nationwide. I think this is compounded by a lot of different factors, Um, international travel restrictions. I know a lot of uh, ski resorts rely on visa workers coming up from South America. And and I don't know how much Jackson Hole has or or if they're coming in this winter, but but talk about your efforts to staff up for the 2021 to 22 ski season and any challenges you might've had there. (laughs) Tons of challenges. Um, (laughs) But um, we're really fortunate to have so many seasonal employees returning year after year. You know, for example, this year, 70% of our lift operators from last year are coming back. Um, Some departments and areas of functional competency are fully staffed and and usually are, such as patrol, grooming, and snowmaking, Um, whereas there are other departments that we have to recruit for, and it's always so competitive to get chefs and food and beverage Uh, Last year, we were not able to bring in any foreign workers due to COVID, but this year we're going, the restrictions are lifted and we'll be able to welcome back, I think it's 40 foreign nationals to our our team. And then um, we're also focused on what technology can we develop to reduce our reliance on labor um, and it's not clear in a lot of our jobs, um, but we are pursuing that wherever we can. So, you know, increasing compensation and housing is our best, um, our best strategy to attract our workers. The, and the, you know, the, um, as I look back the last three consecutive se- years, we have paid out bonuses to our seasonal workers just to say thank them for great results. And those bonuses are not part of their compensation package. So I think people are always delighted that their hard work is recognized and that's why we get them to come back. So as you're out there and you're, and you're trying to get a workforce to run the mountain, how much are you thinking about diversity and inclusion? And I ask because Vale and Altera both very explicitly released statements last year saying, hey, you know, we're really not doing a good enough job in A, attracting diverse skiers and B, finding a workforce that's diverse and we can do better. I'm curious where, where Jackson, where, where your efforts are and where your head's at as far as is diversifying the workforce who, who runs Jackson Hole and also diversifying the clientele that's skiing there. Well, you know, we believe that we need to reflect America in all, 
its diversity of opinions, cultures, and backgrounds. And specifically, we're focused on ensuring a sense of belonging and welcome to anyone who comes here. Um, we're working with several groups to ensure that JHMR is better at providing access to you know, people who would typically have barriers to skiers to skiing. Um, we're partnering with the National Ski Area Association, our local group, Coombs Outdoors, um, which gives access or we help them get access to the resort um, to some of the underprivileged youth here, um, the Jackson Community Foundation. So, you know, we've selectively chosen partners because they have scope in what they do, and they can also provide us direction in what we might otherwise be blind to. And when we talk about diversity, it's not just racial diversity. There's, if, if you look throughout the ski industry, most ski resorts are still run by men. And you are one of the few women who's running a, a large ski resort, although that's getting better. Uh, vale, I think, has done a really good job. They, they now have nine of their 34 North American resorts have a woman at the helm. Um, Altera made a couple of, of very prominent promotions recently with Amber Broadway running Solitude and Dee Byrne running the Palisades Tahoe Resort. Uh, but fr from your chair, Mary-Kate, do you think that the ski industry can do a better job to create more opportunities for women to rise up the ranks? Um, I don't think it's just the ski industry. I think every industry could do a better job. Um, but I think it, an example of a great job is Vale. And I think Vale's success is the result of very thoughtful and deliberate talent development. Um, they give women a chance, but they don't push them into jobs. They seem to thoughtfully plan their development, uh, give them a chance to um, gain the right experience. And that's the path that we are setting down here. We have embarked on uh, a number of initiatives with our HR group. Um, we're looking at thoughtful talent development, identi identifying people's potential, ensuring that, we, that women and all kinds of diverse um, people are represented as we identify who has the talent to move forward. We try and, and plan careers so that people can have access to developing new skills so that they can slowly move up the ladder um, in a very thoughtful way so that they're prepared um, to take on bigger roles. And, you know, we, through our, our talent development, I want to say in the last year of our full-time employees of 500 people, we've probably promoted 45 or 50, promoted half of them to new roles, created um, to give them more experience, just to stretch them. Half of them just replacing their, you know, the person who was above them um, because they have been groomed for that. So I do think um, there's great opportunity in every industry to thoughtfully prepare women for the next step and probably most importantly, give them a chance. Yeah. Well, if you look around the industry, there's there's certainly a, a very compelling real-time classroom going on as, as the industry continues to adapt to the ongoing challenges of COVID. With the 2020 to 21 ski season behind us, Mary-Kate, and the 2021 to 22 ski season looming, I, I'm just curious, looking back, how did last season go compared to your expectations as you were looking ahead in the summer of 2020 after our sudden shutdown? You know, to say there was uncertainty is um, a gross exaggeration. We had no idea what winter would bring. 
we had scenarios where, you know, we had less than 400,000 skier visits. You know, we, we, we didn't know if people would come, come out. We didn't know how they would feel. Um, we had more scenarios planned and we just said, we're going to pick a path and, and go for it. And we changed every facet of our operations. Um, and we changed them overnight, which to me, I was so proud of our teams who've done the same thing year after year because it works. And to be able to pivot like that and introduce new protocols and operations, um, I was so pleased, so proud. Um, we had we had our share of snafus. We had people who didn't want to wear masks. We, you know, everyone was unhappy with the lines. But as we look back, we gave people an opportunity to come out and experience the great outdoors, have a sense of adventure. And if you skied last year, you know, my experience was the first time I was out on skis, took the took the lift up and had every worry in the world. And the second you, you know, I turned my skis to start going down the hill, it was just back to normal and life yep. was great again. So <laughs> we were able to deliver that experience. Um, and that's what we're hoping to do this year. And hopefully, you know, hopefully there's a higher sense of understanding Hopefully people will recognize that we might have some staffing challenges. We're hoping people will be kind. Well, the, the lift line certainly made it feel as busy as ever. But looking at your total attendance and skier visits last year, was it above or below or on average? Well, um, in our, we had a peak three years ago, and we've been working our way back down since then. So it was definitely below average. But, okay, I can say it was below average. Um, our lift loading capacity was, was um, you know, distinctly below average. And that's where, the, that's where we saw so many problems. We did a lot of work to try and estimate how many people would actually get on a gondola at the same time, how many would get mm -hmm. on a lift. And um, we were off in those numbers. You know, you'd see a group of six people come up and they'd want six individual Gandhis. So... <sighs> Um, so that hurt, um, and, uh, being able to load fully this year, we hope that we, uh, will eliminate that, that stress. So you went through like the entire industry, this gigantic exercise, to completely rethink how Jackson Hole had done everything for decades. And, and that was an enormous challenge, I would imagine. Um, but I would imagine you learned a lot too. And, and, and as you reset and kind of broke this operation down to the studs and, and said, okay, now we have to rebuild it in a totally different way. Did you learn anything that you plan to carry into the future? Like clearly we want to get back to loading lifts fully. Right. But, but, but are the things you learned that you said, okay, you know what, that's actually a better way of doing things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it forced us to stop and reimagine our business and reevaluate everything we do. And so like a lot of businesses, you know, we probably forced four years of innovation and change into a single season um, without without a lot of runway. Um, the way people order food online, contactless lodging check-in, ski rental delivery are all examples of better experiences for our guests that are now sustainable and that we are we're going to stay with. Um, our advanced ticket sales. Um, we think that that's a great tool and we had to create that software, you know, within a month or so. So um, 
we are um, we will build off of our learning and we'll, we're going to try and further improve our our customer experience department. Um, we'll have self checkout in select areas and other technological innovations. Um, I think that reimagining, innovating, and improving will continue to be an important uh, exercise for us here. For me, my the the, the best takeaway was how flexible, how creative, how innovative our team was. Um, and every single department across the board just pivoted. And um, so as we head into this season, and there's certainly a lot of uncertainty, um, I have just so much more confidence that our team will be able to get through it and deliver. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. And, and, and how should guests who skied Jackson Hole last year how should they expect the experience to be different this season? Well, I think loading our, our lifts is going to make all the difference, right? Yeah. We're not going to have those huge mazes. We're not going to have ghost lanes. Um, you know, people, it will be people's option to wear face masks on a lift, you know, uh, in a lift line sort of thing. Um, so there'll be those things, but it will also be our mountain. And um yeah. You know, that's what people are really here for. And once we get them up the, the mountain, it should be the same great experience. They will have to mask up on the tram, though, correct? They will have to mask up on the tram, correct. Uh, until until the county health regulations are rescinded. And, and, and that they're not required to on the gondola. So what's the difference between those spaces? Because they're both enclosed lifts. It's probably the number of people. Um, you know, the optics of 100 people standing shoulder to shoulder, uh, on the tram, you know, um, versus people loading into a gondola where they're probably, you know, they probably know one or two other people. It might be their own, um, their own party. Um, both tram and Gandhi's are less than 10 minute rides. Um, people can jump on a Gandhi and pull the mask out of their pocket. Um, and, you know, hopefully people will all be vaccinated. Um, but that, it was really, the condensed area, 100 people in a very small space, even though CDC guidelines are still that you should be fine um, in if, you know, exposed to the virus in less than 15 minutes, that it was the, the density um, versus eight people in a Gandhi at max and your ability to pull out your own mask. So what do you tell the guy who wants his own gondola car this year? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> load them up, Mask load them up. up right we it's more important to get this line moving and get up there yeah. and get the goods i i think we're all uh, very anxious for that all right last question for you here today mary kate you found yourself in the middle of a dust up between a, a number of parties here this last summer jackson hole owner jay kemmerer hosted a fundraiser for the house freedom caucus on august 5th following that event patagonia chose to cut ties with the resort and several employees orchestrated protests. Um, I imagine this was a challenging time for you personally, Mary-Kate. Uh, talk about managing this rift between employees, partners, and the owner, and 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 how you're able to deal with it in the moment and, and what you think the long-term fallout may be. Okay, well, I'm going to start with a long-term perspective, and that is stating that we have great owners um, the Kemmer family has deep roots in Wyoming. They bought the resort in 1992 with the objective of giving back to Wyoming, and they have given back in spades. Uh, as owners, 
The family has reinvested $240 million um, to build our infrastructure, and that's the majority of the resort's profitability. Um, their objective has been to build a stronger, more stable resort. And the result is that we have a well-deserved reputation as being one of the best ski resorts in the world. Uh, our company employs 1,900 permanent and seasonal employees. That makes us the largest private employer in Teton County and the region. And our commitment is to be a great employer with competitive compensation, generous benefits, uh, and ensure this ensures a strong economic base for our community. Uh, as I said before, we've been a leader in the ski industry. We've been recognized by the National Ski Area Association. We're the largest uh, mountain resort to be powered 100% with green energy. And, you know, bringing this back, we, the Jackson Hole Mountain Resort has no political affiliation. Uh, our employee base represents America with our diversity of political views, ethnicity, gender, blah, blah, blah. Um, our goal is to be Switzerland and have a very neutral company. We encourage our employees to research political issues. And then on election day, we pay them for the time away mm -hmm. from the workplace that they, they need in order to vote. Um, and we encourage them to vote after researching issues that are near and dear to them. So we have no political affiliation. Um, one more thing is that our community has benefited from the philanthropic donations of the Kemmerer family, in addition to a wing down at the hospital uh, donated by the family. Uh, one of our owners, Connie, has established the wellness program. Uh, their, their philanthropy extends well beyond our local community, but you'll never find reference to their good works. They, they don't need the acknowledgement. Um, they just make the decisions that they think are right, and then um, any of their decisions are outside the scope um, of the Jackson Hole Mountain Resort business. So against this backdrop, uh, Patagonia made the decision to no longer sell their product to our network of retail stores, and they terminated our longstanding relationship. It's ironic that Patagonia uh, sought to inflict economic harm on JHMR and our 1,900 employees when we share so much in common regarding our vision and values and renewable energy and recycling and water use and blah, blah, blah. We implement the same ideals for which Patagonia stands. So uh, to be clear, JHMR had nothing to do with the fundraiser. I read about it in the paper, same as everyone else. The event was not held at JHMR. It was held at a community hotel. And we had no visibility or involvement as a company with the actions of our owners beyond operating a resort. So the publicity garnered by their decision caused outcries huge outcry from both sides. There were no organized employee protests, but certainly our employees represent a broad spectrum of views. And many of them expressed views, you know, their views that were communicated, both positive and negative. And negative. Um, their views were passed along to our owners. Uh, we are moving forward. The gaps that were left in our product line when Patagonia withdrew from our stores were quickly filled in by a number of world-class brands. We made the offer to refund 100% of any season pass product that had already been purchased, and two people asked for their money back. Um, we've seen our season pass sales increase significant, significantly for the season, and we are starting to see our peak season days sell out. So we are moving on, 
And despite Patagonia's action, we are just going to stay focused as the Jackson Hole Mountain Resort to being a world-class resort um, that provides our guests with a big mountain adventure and superior guest experience so that they can leave all these stresses behind them. So, I mean, in summary, we're moving on. It was a a very difficult period, um, and we're going to be fine. Mary-Kate, if you have a third career, I think it's going to be as a diplomat. That was very well done. And that, that's a very tricky situation. And uh, and I applaud your handling of it. Um, well, I, I, I thank you very much for your time today. And um, I apologize for the for the technical issues we had earlier, but but we got it done. And, uh, and I, I really cannot wait to see all of these things unfold and develop at Jackson Hole over the next several years and under your leadership. And, and I'm looking forward to getting out there and seeing it for myself. Oh, and Stuart, I I applaud your knowledge about this place, right? You clearly you. been here, but you've done your research and it's been a real delight to participate in this. So thank you so much and definitely reach out and let me know when you're next out here. We'd love to see you. That's Mary-Kate Buckley, president of Jackson Hole Mountain Resort. That was awesome, Mary-Kate. She's handling a hailstorm of issues extremely well, in my opinion. I want to point out also, and she didn't ask me to do this, but we ran into some major technical issues in our first attempt to record that, and she was unbelievably patient and gracious, and we actually had to end up re-recording the entire thing. Time is the most valuable thing you can give someone, as a very smart person told me one time, and Mary-Kate gave me way more time than I would ever have reasonably expected her to. So thank you, Mary-Kate, very sincerely for that. And I want to thank you all for listening. No matter who you are, I know Jackson Hole's on your list. So I hope you enjoyed that. But let me know who else you'd like to hear from on the pod. And if you run a mountain, hit me up and let's make it happen. Trust me, no place is too small. I love the JHMRs of the world, but I love the town bumps just as much and I've featured several of them on the show. So I'm serious about that. Please reach out. Next up, we will hear from Smuggler's Notch owner, Bill Stritzler. That is not a community bump. And next week, a terrific local ski columnist out of Massachusetts, Sean Sutner will join me and will rap about New England skiing a bit. Then I am scheduled to speak with Wachusett's owner, Jeff Crowley, Steamboat CEO, Rob Perlman, and another great little community ski area, Black Mountain of Maine. Remember, subscribe to the free Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com to get those the second they drop. The email that has the podcast in it beats the iTunes sync by a couple of hours. And those are hours you could be using to listen to the storm. Also, please follow along on Twitter or Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. And you can also find the storm on Facebook. Thank you all very much for listening. Stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I'll talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.